Good evening. Hello and welcome. For those of you who are at the bar getting a drink, feel free to continue. I've got some things to say, so there is some time. Um, welcome to the Art Gallery of Ontario. This is a very exciting night for us here. My name is Sean O'Neill. I'm the Associate Director of Adult Programming and Partnerships in the Department of Public Programming and Learning, where we foster creativity, learning, and dialogue through experiences like this with art and ideas, presenting talks, special events, performances, studio art programs, and camps for over 250,000 people of all ages each year. I would like to acknowledge that we're gathered here today on Mississauga territory, on land that has been home to the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. We are so happy that we have Chris Hadfield and many friends here tonight for what is going to be, I think, an extraordinary, special, different program for us here at the AGO. And we're also really happy to hold this in conjunction with a landmark, monumental exhibition that I hope all of you have heard of and many of you have seen called Mystical Landscapes, Masterpieces from Monet, Van Gogh, and more. About that exhibition, it is organized in partnership with the renowned Musée d'Orsay in Paris, and it explores the mystical experiences of 37 artists from 14 countries, including Emily Carr, Paul Gauguin, Vincent van Gogh, Georgia O'Keeffe, and Claude Monet. I would like to thank the exhibition supporters. An exhibition this big does not happen without a coalition of extraordinary support, including RBC, Tim and Francis Price, Richard M. Ivey, Mrs. John Flemmer, the Ontario Cultural Attractions Fund, and our media partner, the Globe and Mail. Let's give it up for our supporters, please. So we have a range of programs uh, that we've planned in conjunction with this exhibition, but this one tonight is special. Uh, and part of the reason is about a year and a half ago when our programming team sat down with the exhibition's curator, who you'll hear from later, Catherine Lochman, we asked her, Kathy, who's your dream speaker? You know, if you could really have anyone, who would it be? And she was ready. She nearly jumped out of her seat and screamed at us, Chris Hadfield! It's got to be Chris Hadfield! And those of, us who have, who, who, those of you who have seen the exhibition know that Kathy does not think small. Um, and so we started investigating how we might get the commander here. We thought, is it an agent? Is there a friend? Should we beg? We were willing to try anything. And then I got an email from somebody named Evan Hadfield. Um, you'll hear from Evan in a second, uh, but you'll hear about why when I got that email I wrote back faster than I've ever responded to any email in my life because he had a proposal for us, which was to partner on a program that would showcase the extraordinary work that Chris, his family, his team are doing to foster the visions of artists and connect people to extraordinary stories and places around the world, starting with an expedition to the far north. Tonight, we'll take you through a series of perspectives and stories and ideas reflecting on the theme of landscape, the far north, the cosmos, and notions of what a mystical or transcendent experience means to us today. You'll hear from artist Paul Colangelo and artist Vivian Gutswa, who went on a special ex expedition along with Evan and Chris. You'll hear from Kathy Lochnan, who worked on this show for five years. And you'll hear from astrophysicist Peter G. Martin, who contributed to the show as part of a council of um, people across disciplines who were helping Kathy and, and all of us think through what it meant to do a show about mystical experiences. And finally, of course, you'll hear from the national hero himself, Commander Chris Hadfield. 
I'll introduce you to each speaker as they arrive, but first I want you to meet Evan, who does some really extraordinary work connecting his father's work and message to the world, and will explain to you a little bit more about what they're up to. So please welcome Evan Hatfield. I hope the mic works. I'm not nearly as tall. <laughs> Those of you in the front, you'll just miss my nose. It's fine. Um, I'm really excited to be here today. I thank all of you for coming. I really thank the AGO for letting us put this on. Uh, it was a dream of ours just as much to be able to work with them. Uh, so this is just a twinning of two people who hopefully will be able to do this into the future as well. Uh, on the TTC here, my father asked me what I was going to talk about, uh, as he always does before we go to events together. And the fact that I didn't know what I was going to talk about, and currently still don't know what I'm going to talk about, uh, <laughs> I think is what I want to say. So he's going to talk a bit more about the why we went up there um, in detail. But I, I really want to talk about why I am incapable without him, and he has a lot of trouble without me. And it's because we're different. We are, we are drastically different people. He needed to know what I was going to say because he's going on after me, and he wanted to prepare in his mind what he was going to say. And I thought, that's going to be fine. I'll make it up when I get there. Um, <laughs> and to have those two mindsets working side by side has allowed us to do things that I think otherwise are really, really difficult to do, specifically bridging between people who don't see eye to eye yet and trying to teach them about something that maybe they haven't quite figured out in the same way that um, I feel they could. So when we went to the Arctic, we worked with this company, Cork Expeditions, who actually came and saw our stage show here in Massey Hall and said, would you please put that on, on our ship? And at first, I actually said no, because when you're a public figure, you get a lot of offers from tourism companies who just like you to join, and then they just sell in your name, and it's really not that enjoyable to go on that vacation. So in the beginning, I said no, but then I thought about it more, and I thought, okay, well, what are they really offering me if not the chance to go do something unique? And if somebody offers you the chance to go do something unique, it's it's a lot easier to twist it and make it work towards something that you'd say yes to. So what I said to them is, okay, if you give me 12 births and I have no commercial content connected to you, I'd be happy to bring up artists who I feel would do a, a better job than has been done in the past of truly capturing what the Arctic is now. I think there's a really big disconnect between our preconception of what we're going to see in a lot of places and what is actually in those places. So we build up this belief that we know something. And then when we get there, that belief is almost crumbled before us. Uh, and I think that the Arctic, because of you know, the Arctic, it, its, its whole weight, it's very easy for us to get trapped in a preconception. So when we started planning this, I thought, I don't want to bring up 10 people who do the same thing, and I definitely don't want to bring up 10 people who have the same experiences, because they'll say the same thing. And then you won't actually find the truth. You'll find one opinion repeated 10 times. So when I started thinking about that, we looked at what are the mediums that an experience is shared through? How can I find people who tap into those mediums really well? And then where can we take those mediums and share them with the public? So some of you would have noted that we've already released a lot of video online through our YouTube medium. We've had both science and, uh, I guess, lifestyle, just to sort of capture what we had up there. But I wanted to team with the AGO to, to specifically focus on the medium of photography. And I've brought two of our photographers here today, or they've joined, thankfully. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Vivienne. Um, 
to talk about what they experienced, because I don't think that uh, it would have been very easy for us to go up and make one documentary with one point of view and bring up 10 people who would help make that single documentary, and we would have all come home and all of you would have known what I thought about the Arctic. But I feel like if I bring up 10 who do photography like, like these two, who do videography like the three we brought up, uh, who write journalism like the author Elmo who we brought up, the truth is actually somewhere between those 10 artists. It's in none of their opinion, it's in none of their medium, but if you want to know a true experience, you almost need to be able to see the haze between those 10. And hopefully we can get at least a little bit of some of the background of that haze uh, through our speakers today. Danny Michelle is here somewhere. Uh, oh, in the back, looking very suave. Um, Danny came up and he wrote an entire album of music aboard this, this Soviet icebreaker that completely goes against the type of music he's been doing in the past. It's very Russian feel and focused, but giving him the opportunity to go up there, that's what he wanted to show because it's what he experienced and it's what he wanted to share. And it's not the same as what Paul shared, it's not the same as what Vivienne shared, nor our videographers, but to me it, it's, it's where the truth lies. And so I'm very excited that you guys are going to be able to see some of the art that we've produced from this show. I hope that next year we'll be all back here again doing the exact same thing with Rwanda in focus. So uh, thank you all so very much for being here tonight. And I believe our first speaker today is going to be Paul. So Paul, knock him out of the park. Thank you very much. Um, so just a bit of background, I'm a Canadian photojournalist slash documentary photographer, uh, typically focusing on environmental issues, wildlife, um, conservation. I'm part of a group called the International League of Conservation Photographers, which is uh, about 100 photographers who dedicate at least some of their time um, trying to you know, use photography to, to help in environmental issues. Um, so, I, you know, was um, very generously offered to um, join this trip up to the Arctic on the Soviet air icebreaker. Um, and I ended up uh, photographing a story on this trip for Canadian Geographic. Um, originally, when Evan invited me to come speak tonight, I was going to show, tell the story the same way we would have told the story in the magazine. But I was so taken with the concept of this exhibit um, that I'm... I'm kind of shifting things. I'm going to talk ab about the trip, um, but how it relates to mysticism in nature, or having that connection to nature, and the challenges of that that we face, you know, or the challenges of doing that today. And I'm also going to talk about one project um, that I've done in the past, which has been the one that has kind of stuck with me uh, because of that of that uh, connection. So, so thank you all for coming tonight. Um, you know, and. What, what I love about the concept is this, is this idea that nature has this power to spark something within us, um, and call it what you will, an existential uh, you know, reflection or a spiritual experience. I think there's so many different uh, ways of describing it because those experiences mean different things to different people. Uh, for me as a boy, it was something as simple as kind of a tingling I got in my gut when I would go walking through the woods by myself. Um, and it was that kind of love of nature and that response to nature. Um, and well, because of that is why, you know, it's, nature's played such a big role in my photography and in my life. So 
I was lucky enough to spend uh, two weeks in kind of this very, very foreign Arctic landscape, which is so different from, from what we are all used to. Um, oh, this clicker. Does this clicker need to be? Here we go. Um, so, you know, just on its own, not every day an astronaut calls you up and invites you onto a Soviet-era icebreaker to go explore the Arctic for, for two weeks. Uh, but what made this trip even more special was this group of artists that were there. There was around 10 of us, I'd say. Um, you know, all very different and all kind of interpreting this very new and very different landscape in their own way. Uh, for me, the first thing that struck me was the scale. I mean, uh, you know, we and our massive ship were just dwarfed by it. It was a, kind of a landscape made by and for giants. Um, the silence in the Arctic was unlike anything I've experienced in any other kind of landscape. I mean, obviously, you know, no rustling leaves, no, you know, flocks of uh, songbirds chirping away, but even the wildlife that was there, it's almost like this natural the library of the, the natural world, because I mean, these massive humpbacks, when they break that surface, they're silent. All you hear is this kind of muted breath of theirs. And the light, of course, near the poles, very different. You know, we had days um, uh, of constant light, um, you know, where, where sunset kind of morphs into sunrise. And even, you know, motion and time seems to play tricks with you up there. It's like, you know, the, the scale of time um, is operating um, at a pace that's not really meant for us. We can tell that this glacier is moving, but we can't see it move. And I mean, these whales, what are they thinking when they break the surface and take a look up above the surface? Are they having existential thoughts? I mean, it, this is a bit like Chris Hadfield popping his head up above our atmosphere and taking a look around space. What are these guys thinking? Um, and so, you know, these are the kind of thoughts I can have while back at home editing these photos, looking at it all. Uh, but the problem is when I'm actually in the situation, it's a completely different story. I mean, if you zoom out, this is what I'm seeing in that moment. It's this kind of tangle of appendages holding on to, you know, electric, electrical recording devices. The guy next to me is pissed off because he got salt water on his lens. The woman next to him is upset because his views, her view is disturbed. You know, it's like an angry circus. And it, <laughs> it's, it's not exactly the time of situation where I'm about to break out into spiritual reflection. Um, but this is a lot like life, isn't it? I mean, there's constantly all these different distractions um, that, that are keeping us from spending time alone with our thoughts, especially in nature. And so on the ship, you know, it's constant distractions. They're just a little bit different than, you know, everyday life distractions. Like up on the top deck, the guy who always wears a Hawaiian t-shirt might come up for a chat. Sorry, this clicker doesn't really seem to be. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Um, or at the stern of the ship, this guy comes up. This is one of the Russian crew members who's coming up for snow after having a sauna below deck. Again, it's a bit disruptive. Um, or walking along in a glacier, which is kind of littered by people taking selfies. And, you know, we... 
so many of us do this. We're so focused on documenting this amazing experience we're having. But the documentation often comes at the expense of the experience itself. And so how often, presently, are people going out and truly having that, that experience without technology in between us, We're trying to have some sort of connection with the natural world? Even in my line of work, so this is obviously not in the Arctic, um, I'm often found in, find myself in remote, you know, as inspiring as they come, these landscapes. Um, but the reality is, I'm still not having these moments because, you know, when I'm taking this picture, I'm sitting in a helicopter. I've got this, you know, earphones on, talking to the pilot, trying to maneuver us to get the picture for the story that the editor had me for, you know, and this pressure is, again, everyday life, and we're just, we're, we're, we're not shutting down and trying to connect like, you know, some of the artists in, in this exhibit. But there, there was one project for me which gave me this opportunity, and it was a, a project in northern British Columbia to tell the story of stone sheep, which is what these guys are here. It's like a bighorn sheep. This project was funded by National Geographic, and this herd of stone sheep, which is thought to be the largest in the world, lives on this one mountain plateau, and the, the mountain's threatened by a mine. And so to tell this story, I spent a total of six months camping up on that mountain, largely by myself. Um, so, you know, a helicopter would drop me off with enough food and gear to, to spend about two months at a time up there. And so it was just me, 250 sheep, um, you know, roaming grizzlies and a pack of 16 wolves. And the day-to-day, -day, as I got into the rhythm, the pressure of the photography, you know, all that stuff just kind of became such second nature and I just kind of got into the natural rhythm. It was kind of strange. Um, but then one night, walking back to camp in the winter, I came across the herd of, or the, the pack of uh, 16 sheep wolves. And, uh, <laughs> and it was one of the most uh, memorable experiences of my life. But spending this amount of time in the wilderness, apart from everything else, has this effect where ev everything else in your life kind of melts away in the background. And there's this kind of equalizing effect where now I'm really just one of the other animals up on the mountain. Um, and it, it gives you this perspective, which I've never had before. And I think it's a really healthy perspective to have, to kind of keep tucked away in the back of your mind, because whenever you, know, you get stressed out about work or other things in life, you have this perspective like, hey, I'm just this animal on this spinning rock suspended mysteriously you know, in space. And all of a sudden, that spreadsheet or deadline or whatever shrinks. It's not so much of a problem. So I would you know, encourage anyone here to carve out one day of the year to go out into nature, leave your phone and camera at home, and just try to connect. Don't think about anything. Just go out there and be. Um, I'm sure you'll, you'll be thankful for it. Thank you very much. I'm just going to go to the forest now. I'm done. This is good. Um, so our next speaker retired from the AGO on Monday after 47 years. I found this out just a few moments ago. Yes. We've brought her back. 
Um, but she's held many curatorial positions here at the AGO, most recently as our senior curator of international exhibitions. She built the AGO's world-renowned collection of prints and drawings. She's curated such exhibitions as Turner Whistler Monet, Impressionist Visions, Black Ice, David Blackwell's Prince of Newfoundland, and of course, Mystical Landscapes. Please join me in welcoming the distinguished, extraordinary, inspiring Catherine Lochman. Thank you, Sean. Um, it's a huge pleasure to be here tonight, and I must say that um, uh, Lauren Harris was one of those people who did indeed go up to the wilderness and commune with nature. Um, he was born into a very wealthy Toronto family. You've all heard of Massey Harris. And, um, and he was incredibly well-connected spiritually. He had um, a, great, a grandfather and, uh, an, and an uncle who were Presbyterian ministers and another uncle who was a Baptist minister. And he knew his theology. Uh, he'd read the mystics. There was nothing that Lauren Harris didn't know. He could easily have gone into the ministry himself. Um, his mother was a Christian scientist, so really in the end, I suppose he decided to bring it all together because he was attracted to theosophy, which was um, a sort of scientific um, attempt at bringing together Eastern and Western religions and esoteric knowledge that was extremely popular in Toronto in the 1900s. And in 1920, Harris began to uh, gravitate in that direction and he joined the Toronto Lodge in 1924. And this provided him with a religious framework in which he could understand his spiritual experiences and aspirations. Um, basically, Harris saw the spiritual world as underly underlying and transcending phenomenal existence. So in fact, uh, what we think of as real, he saw as, um, as, as, as unreal. And the spiritual world to him was much more real. The spirit was where it was at for Harris, not the body much to his wife's chagrin. <laughs> that marriage ended. Um, and artists were thought to, uh, at that point, to um, possess unusual potential in intuiting spiritual truths and giving expression to them through artistic mediums. And, and he was very much centered center to this um, uh, uh, movement, this um, theosophic movement in Toronto and to the artistic community because it was Lauren Harris who was the focal point, the leader of the group of seven. And they were all searching for a, a national spirit in the landscape. Uh, and um, as we know, they found it for us. But um, he continued to search uh, for a personal path in his life. Um, his marriage wasn't working terribly well. And in 1930, he decided he was going to go to the Arctic in search of um, meaning and, and identity. And he wrote to Emily Carr, Jackson and I are going to the Arctic the end of July. I hope to get loosened up and somewhat freed from my solidifying inhibitions and move into exaltation for a time. I am in great need of losing my littleness and hoving completely in the life of the universe, in waters and skies and land and light. Um, and once he got there, he was a bit disappointed by the work he was doing, but gradually he began to feel like he was doing things of note. And he wrote to her and he said, I'm trying to get up to the summit of my soul and work from there, where the universe sings. Now, perhaps his Arctic works are his most spiritual, 
Um, certainly of the Arctic works, I think Isolation Peak uh, best represents um, uh, his achievement. And it also reflects um, his theosophic um, interest. Um, he had read Annie Besant and, uh, and Ledbetter's Thought Forms, a book which uh, um, identified um, systems of correspondences between colors, lines, shapes, and certain feelings and ideas. Um, and they proposed a kind of sacred geometry that was appropriate for uh, spiritual expression. And indeed, the pyramid was the most sacred form of all and seen uh, to be uplifting and to point to ultimate reality. Um, and blue was considered to be the most sacred color. Um, and so the blue that he used in the sky was intended to indicate um, the sacred nature of this landscape. Um, the green of the glacier is very close to the um, um, color that was said to symbolize adaptability in the theosophic color scale, and the brown sensuality. So if you look at this um, quite beautiful painting, you realize that it's full of um, encoded references to the spiritual, um, to um, his own response to that landscape. And um, I think that um, this mountain has a huge sense of presence. Uh, which is one of the things the Theosophists aimed for. Uh, it gives the work enduring meaning. Um, and so um, his Arctic works remain, I guess, for us, his ultimate achievement. Um, he fairly soon gave up painting uh, representational forms and became totally engaged with abstraction. He left his wife and moved with his lover to Santa Fe, New Mexico. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kathy. Um, our next speaker, back to uh, our second artist who journeyed to the far north more recently than Harris, uh, Vivian Gutswa, who found a way to turn her hobby of walking her city, she's a native New Yorker, into a career in photography. Um, Vivian started with a 70, $79 point and shoot camera that she purchased online, and within a month, of shooting New York City from her unique perspective, there were 70,000 people following her work on Tumblr. That's amazing. Um, focusing primarily on her home city, her photos give a sense of uh, distance. There's a hauntedness to them, uh, using coloration and tones to create feelings of nostalgia and memory. And I'm really curious to hear how that translated to your experience up in the north. So please welcome Vivian, everybody. great to be here. Um, I really want to thank the Hadfields for taking me to the Arctic um, and for the AGO tonight for having me here to speak. Um, it's such a privilege. Um, so as was mentioned, I started my career seven years ago and I stumbled into photography rather accidentally. Um, I grew up quite poor in New York, just to give a little background context. And um, I kind of went through a life crisis and I started walking around New York to clear my mind and to sort of try to 
find myself and maybe find something mystical in the cityscape of New York. Um, so in a city of millions of people, um, I definitely started looking for a certain kind of beauty and a certain kind of feeling that would resonate not only with myself, but with other people. And once I began sharing that online, it was almost a revelation to kind of connect with other people about the city that I grew up in and to hear other people's um, feelings about the city and how they felt about my work as it related to that. And so being asked to photograph the Arctic um, was almost one of the most overwhelming and daunting sort of um, tasks I could have had set upon me. And while I travel for a living, I'd never really been to an environment like the Arctic previously. Um, I photograph New York City in the snow quite a bit, and my focus with that work is the isolation of what it feels like to be one person in a city alone and to kind of deal with all the anxiety of modern life um, and to be surrounded by something as ephemeral and beautiful as the city when it snows at night. Um, and so, as you've all deduced, we went up um, to the Arctic when there was the midnight sun. Um, so there weren't very many opportunities to sort of experience what night was like up there. But for me, it was an extremely life-changing experience, not only as an artist, but as an individual. Um, and for me, when I initially started photographing and started thinking about how I wanted to approach this sort of project, I initially started focusing on the isolation in this vast, expansive environment. Um, something that I kept saying over and over again while I stood and I looked at scenes like the one that you're looking at is, this feels completely otherworldly. And of course, saying something like that to an astronaut seemed almost preposterous <laughs> in retrospect. Um, but I think that there is some truth in that. Um, a lot of us, when we think of the Arctic and we think of an environment like that, it's so distant to us that it, it may as well be another planet. Um, and so being in that environment and being on this planet Earth and feeling this intense connection to the environment and having all sorts of revelations about how I felt in nature um, was this very eye-opening experience. And, you know, there, there were quite a lot of moments that we experienced. Um, the nature of the expedition included very many expedition type of things, such as hiking and really getting to be one with the environment. And I started to kind of move away from trying to depict the same isolation that I felt in the city. And I started to try to move towards how the environment was molding and shaping me as a person. And so this photo, for example, was taken when we were at the furthest point north that we went. We were at 81 North in the Canadian High Arctic. And I had attempted to climb, to scale a, a small mountain, actually with Chris Hadfield in the group. And I had a minor panic attack because I suffer from rather extreme anxiety. Um, and I ended up going back down the mountain with one of the guides and got my own private Zodiac ride, which actually inadvertently got me to see this scene, which was this incredible moment of 
everything is going to be okay. And, and I really had to step back outside of what was going on in my own head and look around and really appreciate this amazing vast environment that was really calming and wonderful to experience uh, versus being completely freaked out by it. Um, and that kind of also forced me to think a lot about all of the things that we were witnessing while we were on the icebreaker. So something, a lot of the things that we were looking at while we were on the icebreaker was of course ice, um, since we were in the Arctic, obviously. Um, but for me, the environment was almost an echo of a lot of the issues that were swirling around us with the climate and with all of the other things that we were hearing about from the various geologists who we were with and marine scientists. And so standing on the deck, I had a lot of time to really contemplate this issue. You know, while we were going through this pass, for example, um, just kind of seeing this one lone piece of ice in this environment where prior to coming on the trip, I was really convinced that we were gonna be surrounded by ice at all points during the journey. Um, and so for me, it started really making me open up to, you know, there's a lot more going on in this environment than maybe I had even anticipated. And being there physically and kind of having that connection and realizing that this was a very real thing was very powerful. And I think, you know, I think Paul alluded to the fact that when we were on the ship, uh, the sense of time just sort of got away from us at a certain point. Um, you know, and that was a combination of it being during the midnight sun. So this photo was taken at one in the morning. Um, I would spend a lot of time at night walking around alone and really taking in the environment and kind of being wooed by it. Um, as somebody who grew up in a city and who primarily spent a lot of my life sort of being kind of scared by the vastness of nature because I didn't really understand it. It was the first time in my life that I really had this almost mystical connection. And it was really wonderful to experience something so unusual as being all the way up there um, in the Arctic, in the midnight sun, and having this sort of um, epiphany. And you know, the environments up there also were extremely beautiful and there was this sense of silence that was just all-encompassing. Um, the nice thing about the trip was that when we were up there, we had no uh, connection at all to the internet, uh, no real phone connection. So for 18 days, we were not connected to the world at all. Um, and for somebody whose entire career was built on the internet and who is connected literally on a daily basis almost all the time, I am tethered to my phone, I even have it with me up here right now, um, it was a really amazing thing as an artist to not have that distraction and to just sort of be one with nature and have these moments where prior to taking this photo, for example, I just sat at the edge of this little uh, creek bed and I just took in the silence and really it was one of the most beautiful silences that I've ever heard in my life and it was definitely a changing moment. And of course we did hit points where there was ice that was going past us and it was quite beautiful and the contrast of the beautiful blues of the ice with 
the incredible landscapes that we were passing, these mountains with these amazing contrasts of the black of the mountains with the white of the snow and the clouds sort of changing constantly, was something that was sort of mimicking a lot of kind of all the things that were going on in my head about you know, my whole perspective changing on life, on my art, on what I want to do uh, with my art and with my career. And so for me, a lot of these photos became intensely personal. And where I thought that I initially was going to go on the trip and just kind of document things and record them, it actually turned into a personal journey uh, for me. And I think this was the moment um, I loved the most, and I think it really illustrates the enveloping nature of nature up there. Um, we landed at this summit. Um, there was actually a glacier in the back of me, but just facing this and the smallness of man, um, just compared to these amazing mountains and this landscape that probably had not been traversed by that many humans, was something that was very touching for me to experience. And it's something that I really wanted to share with other people once I got home and convey to my audience, obviously combined with words, and to put it in a context to kind of um, illustrate the majesty of everything. And I'm going to end on this slide. Um, basically, I think, I think any time you go on a journey as an artist, whether it's in your own city or whether you're traveling, whether you're on assignment, there's always a point where you are changed in some respect. And obviously, um, I've indicated this, this was probably one of the most life-changing experiences for me. But this moment in particular was extremely life-changing. Um, I looked out, and I think we had only passed these beautiful mountains. Um, there was like five minutes where we were passing it in the icebreaker going quite quickly. And that moment really lasted for me for a lifetime because it was that moment when I realized that nature was not something to fear. You know, I went into the trip with a lot of fears. I was scared of heights. I was scared of small boats. Um, all things which I had to deal with on a daily basis constantly. Um, and I, I think it was at this point that I sort of, along with the other people I was with on the trip and kind of a lot of the profound conversations that we had, I just came to a realization that everything is going to be okay and there's a lot of things that are going on that are complex and I would love to share them with the rest of the world in whatever way that I can, whatever capacity that I can. and you know, hopefully that this message is shared with everybody. You know, we're always talking about ways of thinking about making art contemporary and contemporary relevance at the AGO. And in particular, I want to thank these two artists for helping us see how these themes are universal and contemporary today. I mean, I am feeling it and I think I speak on behalf of the whole audience when I say those visions and those images are so extraordinary and beautiful. Um, it's interesting that tonight is all about hearing about this show and these ideas and this trip through multiple perspectives because the notion of collaboration and cross-disciplinary collaboration was very much a part of Catherine's process in putting the show together. Um, there was a team of 20, uh, an advisory council of 10 theologians, two historians, six art historians, three scientists, and one monk, 
one of the theologians, um, who were put together and worked with Kathy to develop the vision and the ideas and the rigor of this show. And for those of you who have seen the tome that was produced of the research and of the essays and, and the ideas, you'll understand uh, the depth of it. Um, one of those people is here tonight. I'm very pleased to say that we have Peter Martin, who is a professor in the Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. His research concerns the interstellar medium in the Milky Way, the cycling of material relating to star formation, and the eventual exhaustion of the ISM, which is the interstellar medium, but I know you all know that. <laughs> he is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and of Massey College, and a recipient of the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal through the RSC. And incidentally, he's loaning us his planetarium for two weeks over the holiday season, so you and your children and your grandchildren can come to the AGO and have an experience of the cosmos down in our learning center. Um, but he's going to talk a little bit about his work and how it relates to some of the ideas you're hearing tonight and seeing in the show. So please join me in welcoming Peter Martin. You, uh, you saw my introductory slide, you probably said, what's that guy doing here? <laughs> but really, I'm delighted to be here, and it was uh, really fascinating and life-changing to be on Kathy's uh, advisory committee. One of the things I got to do uh, talking on that committee was uh, being roped into writing an essay in the book, which you are all going to buy. Uh, mine's just a short essay. It's called An Intervention. So I'm intervening here tonight in the same way. In the essay in the catalog, I note a, the following. I'm going to read this to, just to get through it quickly. We're inspired to contemplate the vastness of it all in space and time, and whether it means anything to be human. The answer depends on perspective. On the one hand, compared with the immensity of the universe, the Earth is a speck in a vast system of galaxies, and compared with the age of the universe, humanity is a very late development, suggesting a nothingness. Yet on the other hand, and that's what I'll focus on tonight, our physical existence appears connected with all of nature through processes reaching back at least as far as the first elements condensing out of the hot primordial plasma minutes after the Big Bang that formed the universe. Perceiving this duality arguably represents the ultimate feeling of the sublime. In my essay, I took a historical perspective on how scientific evidence was enriching the understanding of the universe during the time at which the mystical landscapes in this exhibition uh, were being painted. Uh, tonight will be more like an elevator talk, uh, quickly. and. Uh, I will concentrate on the current status of our understanding of uh, how we fit in with the cosmos. To me, the uh, most spectacular thing in a dark, moonless night sky is the Milky Way, seen here uh, from our vantage point uh, inside this spiral-shaped galaxy. So there we are looking out, and it's uh, dizzying to think, here we are orbiting around the galactic center at 220 kilometers a second, pretty fast, but it still takes us a quarter of a billion years to go around in one orbit. 
you'll see uh, black patches on the image uh, of the Milky Way. Those are dust particles that are blocking the light. And they're heated by the light that they're absorbing, and so they warm up and radiate. They warm up to a toasty 20 degrees Kelvin. So we've mapped uh, this dust emission over the whole sky with the microwave eyes of the Planck satellite. And there's something we released in uh, 2011 or so. I, I really, really treasure this image because dust plays such a role, a large role in my research. Dust might play a role in your life too. <laughs> <laughs> so we put this up in the planetarium, a big planetarium that we should have here in Toronto, but this one was in Paris. And it was absolutely spine tingling to see this uh, on, in this huge dome. Uh, and to bring this uh, along with me for, for the rest of the career, uh, we printed up these umbrellas. So there you are. <laughs> so there's the vault of the heaven with uh, dust imprinted a view of it. So you can imagine, it can be the rainiest of days and I'm the happiest of camps. <laughs> So we have a lot of fun with this, uh, and it's inspiring. Uh, this is uh, actually an image we made uh, where we mapped for the first time the galactic magnetic field uh, using properties of the dust emission. It's really pretty awesome. Now, Planck, the satellite that we used to do this, cost a billion euros, and it wasn't not to uh, get us this nice dust image for the umbrella. That was to look at the uh, background radiation uh, from the hot, dense early universe. And this image that we see here is of radiation that's been streaming towards us from all directions for about 14 billion years, emitted just 350,000 years after the Big Bang. Now, the real image of this radiation would be super boring because it's astoundingly uniform, 3 degrees Kelvin. Here what we're showing is the departure from uniformity at levels of only 10 parts in a million uh, and lower. So it's a staggering uh, thing to think about and it's a technological achievement that uh, we can only do in uh, this uh, century. What's even more awesome to me at least is that with a very simple theory involving only gravity, we can predict how these minute disturbances grow into grand clusters of galaxies. And not only that, we find that this matches perfectly the statistics of galaxies that we see at present in the nearby universe and that we see at earlier, more distant epochs like revealed in the Hubble Deep Field. Now the faintest dots that you can discern in this image are the first galaxies that formed only a few hundred million years. Remember that? It all started about 14 billion years ago, a few hundred years after the Big Bang. From this, it's estimated that over the whole observable universe, there's about 100 billion galaxies, each with about 100 billion stars. So these are pretty big numbers, but interestingly, they're finite in space uh, and in time. So no matter what our understanding of the narrative of the day, is with Havlick we can appreciate that there's really a lot of marvelous stuff out there. Local present-day galaxies like M51 can be well studied. 
Now here's a sketch that Lord Ross made in long ago, standing at his telescope very patiently at a time when newly discovered spiral nebulae were thought to be within the Milky Way galaxy. A modern view is obtained with Hubble Space Telescope. You can see that uh, Lord Ross had it pretty good. But uh, with technology, uh, now things are seen in amazing view. Now the main epoch of star formation that formed this galaxy is over for billions of years. But in amazing detail, we can see that star formation is still going on from the gas in the so-called interstellar medium. Now say it with me, ISM. Uh, well, basically gravity is pulling together material and that forms stars. Stars are still being formed in the Milky Way too. And that allows us a close-up look at the process. Here's a local stellar nursery called M16, which is a clustered environment. There's lots of stars forming. And this is thought to be much like uh, the environment that the sun formed in about five billion years ago. Now there's evidence for thousands of planets now found around other stars. And that evidence suggests that most stars have planets, even though we haven't looked at all of them, all of the ones that we looked at do. And we can get a glimpse of how these planetary systems formed, including the solar system in which all of the planets are going around in the same direction in a plane. Observations of still forming protostars, still this material being drawn together with gravity, point to surrounding accretion disks of material. And here's one of them. We see this one in dust emission, which traces the gas as well. The dust is really only about 1% by mass of the gas, but it's a heck of a good tracer, as you can see. And here we see striking gaps, which theory suggests are formed by the growth of planets before our very eyes. But this will take uh, 10 million years, so it's not quite before our eyes. <laughs> not all our uh, planets are lush with life. So here's Mars. It looks kind of barren to me. But when you think about it, it's not for lack of suitable raw materials. Rather, it's the environment. So let, let's talk about, uh, finally, about the raw materials. So stars uh, produce the light from which we see the galaxies. And the hydrogen and helium were produced in the first few minutes. And that's enough to get the first stars going. But all of the other elements, then hydrogen and helium, were cooked up by nucleosynthesis deep within the hot region uh, at the core of stars. And then they were spewed out in violent supernova explosions. So you see a supernova remnant here. This explosion totally destroys the star and disperses the cooked up elements into the interstellar medium. And now they're available for new generations of stars and planets. And we can see this happening in this image, which is actually an X-ray uh, based photo uh, of a supernova remnant. And the colors are coming from different elements, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and silicon in this example. Well, that's good for forming life on rocky planets. But the, these explosions, this nucleosynthesis forms everything in predictable amounts, actually, which can be matched with observations. And that includes uh, metals like iron and cobalt, which I am going to end on. Cobalt is in our bodies. For example, in vitamin B12, 
which has a key role in our normal functioning. There it is, a very complex, the most complex vitamin. And there's cobalt at the center, represented by the light blue bonds. All of the other stuff in that molecule is what I already told you about, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and some hydrogen. Oh, phosphorus is good for uh, DNA too. Cobalt is also in cobalt blue. And cobalt blue was a favorite pigment at the time of the mystical landscapes. It figures importantly in the palette chosen for Starry Night Over the Rhone. Thank you. <laughs>
not just by looking around the, the mysticism of the landscape we've all built, but by stepping back from it for a while and, and getting away from it and then returning. You really get uh, maybe a perspective on just what a wonderful construct it is we've put together here and, uh, and to come to this place, uh, which celebrates uh, the reflection on ourselves and, and the best of us trying to explain ourselves to each other is a real is a real delight so thank you for inviting us in and, and have, letting us be part of this tonight it's been interesting to walk through the the incredible human originality of that exhibit and, and try and soak up what little i can of it the the depth of feeling and and difference of perspective uh, but then also to listen to tonight's ideas of that uh, from the very personal observations that Vivian has and what it means inside the soul of a person who's so intensely artistic, who sees the world through different eyes than I do, right, right across to how Peter describes it so technically and yet in an entirely different but, but uh, more mathematically clear manner. And, and it's kind of the world that I live in, this, this weird crossover between the, the analytic world and the engineering world that's necessary in order to be one of Canada's astronauts, but then the unbelievably artistic environment that that puts you into. Many years ago, I was a fighter pilot defending North America during the height of the Cold War. I would sleep in a separate building, and at, at various times, we'd be asleep, myself and one other uh, fighter pilot, and the, in, there'd be this blaring noise that, that sounded a very distinctive way, and it would go off. And when that horn went off, it meant that the game was afoot, and you had 12 minutes from lying asleep in your bed to being airborne in your F-18, 12 minutes. And so we would race and try and get our clothes on frontwards and race down the hall and jump and the airplane was plugged in and we'd throw ourselves in the cockpit and the ground crew's busy uh, getting everything right and getting your straps and get the canopy closed and get the engines fired up, get out on the runway, get clearance, take off and start climbing up into the night sky. And, and the purpose being to head out, uh, out, we were in northern Quebec, to head out of Quebec over to Newfoundland, get gas in Newfoundland and then head out over the the Atlantic to intercept the Soviet bombers that were practicing cruise missile launches on North America and to see what they were up to, to make sure it was just practice. So uh, a really intense technical moment. But every time it happened, and I got to do it many times, every time it happened, uh, I realized the luck that I had to be there, the rareness of the experience as I took my F-18 up to as high as they would let me go, way above almost all of the atmosphere, up into 40, 45, nearly 50,000 feet. And it took about an hour to get to Newfoundland. And so I would get the airplane, I'd punch on the autopilot so the airplane wouldn't do anything surprising, and then I'd shut off every light in the F-18. And I'm on my way to go intercept the Soviets, but this, <laughs> this, this is a rare moment. This is a moment almost nobody can experience because the F-18 is a bubble canopy. It's sort of the opposite of that umbrella. It's, 
It is a perfectly clear bubble around my head where I'm way higher than, than the peak of Everest. I'm alone uh, right on the edge of the cosmos, as close as I can ever get, and with nothing to do but try and notice where I am, try and understand this landscape that I can see, looking up. And I did it every chance I could. I, every, every time they gave me an airplane, I tried to recognize the rareness of this experience and to internalize as much of it um, as my own abilities would allow. And, and I treasure that, yeah, we successfully intercepted the Soviets and defended North America, but it was, it was those moments, those personal moments up there that, that I think about the most. And Kathy mentioned a few years later, um, I woke up on board a spaceship and it was the day that I was gonna go outside. Again, an incredibly difficult technical day. And, and what Paul was describing of, you know, hanging in the window of a helicopter and, and all of the, the lens settings and all of the technical skills he had to gain in order to be able to be uh, the level of, of a chronicler of beauty that he is. Um, the, a spacewalking day is, is, is just a million steps, while actually, you know, thousands of discrete steps, all of them life critical. But finally you have built this suit around your body and, and you, you turn this hatch and, and uh, you're in a, a, a chamber where you've let all of the air out and your suit is inflated and you lift this hatch out of the way and you grab onto each side of the hatch and you pull yourself out into the universe. And and it's like some of the ways that these artists on the images that are cycling through here imagined it. It's like David Bowie imagined it. It's, it was in, in my face, pouring through my eyes, the reality of what, what all of those artists had, had envisaged and, and did their absolute best to try and capture with the media that they had. And I was overwhelmed by it. Uh, I, I, I joke about it now, but uh, the raw, uh, visceral, visual, uh, overpowering stimulation of it just stopped thought to have the world silent and separate from me. Um, to, like it, it had given birth long ago and, and where it was now just a distant planet. And, and I was... Um, somewhat like this hooded figure. I was, I was this, this entity away from everything else. I was uh, alone in, in the immense eternal three-dimensionality of the universe itself, holding onto the ship with one hand. And, and you're busy as can be, and, and Houston's talking to you, and, and there's, there's this enormous checklist, and you've got this suit that's keeping you alive, and, and there's all this stuff going on. But if you don't pause and maybe do what Lauren Harris was trying to do, and that is get yourself mentally away from all the things that got you there, then you might miss the fact that, that you arrived. And, and try and let yourself truly experience it. And at one point, Houston gave me maybe the, one of the biggest gifts of my whole life. There was a complicated technical issue, and they said, just hold on for a few minutes, we need to think. 
And what I, I realized immediately, th this is what I'd been hoping for. This is what I'd been dreaming about, where it, everything else on the station was too far away in the few minutes to go do anything else practical. So my entire job was just to hold on for a few minutes. And so what would you do? So I, I, I initially was internal. I, I just did a, an introspective look at myself and said, what does this actually feel like to be weightless inside this one-person spaceship with, with just the gentlest of fingertip touches holding on to the rest of humanity? You know, what does that feel like? And it, and it felt really liberating and delightful and, and sort of quietly effortless. And the only companion I really had was my own breathing. If you watch uh, Kubrick and, and uh, Arthur C. Clarke's best effort to imagine what that would look like when they were doing their version in the, in the video or in the, in the film version, they gave their spacewalkers their breath as their companion. I thought it was prescient, just brilliant of them, just that steady in-out reminding you that you're a living being in this incredible place. And, but then I thought, that's what I feel like, but... Uh, what's it truly like where I am? And, and so I, I looked around and, and, and maybe got a glimpse of what it's going to be like when we leave Earth, when, when we don't just look up at the sky, but we actually um, turn tail and fire our engines enough when we have the, the technological capability, but also the bravery to, to face up to that and leave Earth on a permanent basis. And I got a, maybe the initial inkling sensation of what, uh, what that's going to feel like. And to complete it, um, I got myself perfectly still. And, and so that I was completely motionless relative to the ship. And w as, as carefully as I could, I let go completely. Just uh, soaring through universe, through the universe. So the first time in my life, first time for lots of people that, that I love and people that, that were watching, but, but much more importantly to me, I think, and much like it was for each of these artists trying to explain it to themselves, um, the first time ever uh, to feel that myself, to, to see what that was like, to be alone in the universe. And, and then Houston called, and I grabbed back on and got back to work and, and did, all, did all my job. But from the space station, we, we look at the planet. We, we go around it every 92 minutes. We get to see the world. You get to see the age of the world, which is really rare. Um, you were talking enormous lengths of time, throwing out 14 billion uh, and 5 billion. But those numbers are so big, they're, they're essentially infinite in our ability to understand them. You know, we have 10 fingers, and 10, anything bigger than 20, and it's a little bit imaginary. And, <laughs> and, um, and, and so to, to me, when I think of the difference between one billion and two billion, it's like one in my brain, you know? And, and I, I can, I'm an engineer, I know that's not true, but it's very difficult to get a sense of the age of the world. But when you orbit the world the way we do, uh, like the six, well, actually the eight people that are up there right now, you really start to see the scars and the, the immensity of this place and, and the, uh, the mysticism that comes with the four and a half billion year history of our planet. And so after we did the show at Massey Hall last year, when, when they asked us to go to the Arctic, I thought, I, I've, I've looked up 
and I've had a chance to, from above, to look down. Uh, I would love this chance to look around in a place I've never been. And I thought Evans' idea, his in interpretation of the original suggestion was brilliant. Let's not keep this to ourselves. Let's try and get people who experience life very differently than we do to come along and then use the best of the technology we have to share it with as many people as possible. Imagine if these artists had never painted these images. We can cycle through them again if you like, but imagine if these artists had never painted these images, if they just said, I I'm content with my own imagination, or painted the images and then destroyed them. Their ability to see something that was unique to their own perception and then share it is what really makes it significant. And to go to the Arctic was, uh, as each of us have tried to say in the limitations of English language, uh, really personally powerful. Where you feel like at a glance, you're not just seeing a place, but you're seeing a thousand years. Or you're seeing where Franklin and his crew spent the winter and died. Or, or you're seeing 10,000 years of human history, or, or you're seeing a place that, uh, that predates everything we know. And it's all just there in front of you, silent, with this great uh, and unconscious portent. And it's around you all the time. And, and so I, I really thank uh, the two of you for making the trip here, for uh, doing the brilliant work for uh, capturing some of those images and not just what you showed tonight of course but everything that's going to follow from the things you've seen and, and of course to Evan and my own family for for uh, giving us all the chance to go see that in each of us when you think of it uh, each of us is living in a landscape and how mystical is this is really us and and I think there's mysticism all around we sure don't understand it all and we do our best to explain it to each other and, and really essentially try and explain it to ourselves. And that's what an exhibit like this is all about, is some of the most gifted of us who have tried to explain it to themselves, often to the point that it drove them mad. But at the same time, with their particular vision, some of them will mean nothing to you, of course. Some, some mean a lot, but, but that shared effort to try and explain it to each other is is all what mysticism is about and it to me it's a really important part of life now and that is i understand the uh, incredible rarity of what i've been allowed to do so far but what do you do with that experience and it's what i challenged everybody on the ship to think what are we going to do with this experience it's still really rare in the human psyche and this place is just as vital and live and important and significant both in time and in place as any other place on the planet and uh, with, with Evan's vision and skills with the skills of the artists on board we're because of that effort we're, we're doing our best to share it with millions of people and it's kind of the, the undercurrent and the metronome to everything that we do right now. How do we take these experiences, let people see them in a way that otherwise they may never have, and then maybe change their own behavior? Because that's the ultimate compliment, is if you could influence someone's perception to the point that they actually change their, their behaviors afterwards. And uh, what, gener what generated the whole uh, trip to the Arctic was 
was as a result of that from the show we did at Massey Hall last year. We have another one set up uh, for the 12th of November this year. A, a whole interplay of different thought, artistic, scientific, trying to bring people in, in the Toronto area that, that would otherwise never get to the forefront and let them explain their perception of reality uh, to, to try and then perhaps explain it to ourselves more clearly. Um, so that, that's coming up. I, I'm so pleased to see uh, everybody here this evening. Thanks a lot for coming. If you haven't been through that exhibit, we've just shown a tiny bit of it, but it's, it's magnificent. It took a huge amount of work. Um, and if you have a chance uh, on, on the 12th to come to Massey Hall, please do. Um, and I think also, hopefully, at the end of this, maybe we'll all have a chance to give the bartender some work back there and, uh, and have a drink. But on behalf of my team, but mostly uh, from my own heart, thank you very much for having us here this evening.